Welcome to the RUF Berkeley podcast. RUF is a campus fellowship centered around experiencing and expressing the love of God to our campus, our classmates, and our community. For more information, check out our website at rufberkeley.com or find us on Instagram at rufberkeley. John 15, verses 4 through 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This semester, um, we're going to be looking at what is quite honestly, the most important aspect of Christianity. Okay, the most important aspect of Christianity. And that is what uh, we're going to call, what theologians call, um, smart people who think about the Bible a lot, union with Christ. Union with Christ. And pastors uh, often say, whenever they're preaching, that something is, quote, the most important mainly because we're just looking for a rhetorical device to get you to pay close attention. But this really is the most important thing, the most important aspect of Christianity, because union with Christ is Christianity. It is what the entire Bible it is about. It is what the gospel is about. And in fact, union with Christ is the gospel. Um. That's why it's so important. It is the heartbeat of the Christian faith and tradition. And so tonight, I simply, um, we're going to be in a series all semester on union with Christ. And tonight, I want us to just ask a simple question of why a series on union with Christ. Um, many of you uh, are familiar with the ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries that always begin, uh, what if I told you that Sammy Yearly was not 22 but 40 years old? Uh, What if I told you that Michael Jordan was not the GOAT, but in fact, LeBron James is the GOAT? That's true. Everybody knows that. Um, Well, similarly, we could start this as, what if I told you that our understanding of salvation, of of God saving people, uh, was almost, uh, for the majority of us, very narrow, misunderstood, or even wrong. That's kind of the goal and purpose of this series. Why a series on union with Christ? The answer is because the reason we need this series is because I believe that most of us, myself included, either overtly or functionally, consciously or subconsciously, operate with too thin of a view of salvation a truncated view of salvation, an unbalanced view of salvation that highlights one aspect of being um, in a right relationship with God at the expense of another aspect. Okay, and so we can even broaden this diagnosis even to those outside of Christianity. So let's say you're on this call and you don't claim to be a Christian just yet. I would say that even you, even those who are not Christians, my hunch is that you too still operate under poor assumptions of what Christianity is. And so I may not convince you, I hope that you stay with us the entire semester, I may not convince you uh, to be a Christian when all is said and done, and that's okay. 
you have time to sit and think and process that. Um, but I hope that you will at least leave here with a more substantive idea of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, that's really just more than an idea. Um, it's not less than an idea. It has content, right? But it actually uh, manifests itself in your life and changes the way that you live and how you see the world and how you see your neighbors and how you see your enemies, uh, among other things. Uh Allow me to illustrate this point in a fairly simple way, this whole misunderstanding of salvation. And I want some, I want some uh, interaction here. Uh, if, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, what do we often refer to ourselves as? What's the title that we use? Now, before you overthink this, I'm going to give you a hint. I've already said the word several times. Uh, so I want somebody to just answer that question. If you're a follower of Jesus, what do we typically refer to ourselves as? Christian. Christians. That's right, Christians. But did you know that the word Christian is used at most only three times in the Bible? And each of those times, the word is probably used pejoratively. So, so not in a good way. It's actually kind of an insult a little bit. Um, and so the very word that you use to describe, that I use to describe my relationship with Jesus is actually a word that the Bible doesn't really use. Now, before I go any further, keep using the word Christian. It's okay. Uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and yet that is the word we've associated with the doctrine of the Trinity, which is in the Bible. The content, the substance of that idea is in the Bible. So keep calling yourself a Christian. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's what I want to suggest. Maybe, just maybe, uh, this might suggest that perhaps there's more out there. There's more to know, and there's more to understand, and there's more to savor, and there's more to live into as it relates to our relationship with Jesus. And that's why we need a series on union. If even such a simple question is like, when you follow Jesus, what do you call yourself a Christian? And that's not the primary word that the Bible uses. Let's kind of keep going down that trail and see what we find. The word Christian is rarely used, but the concept union with Christ, what Paul calls in these specific words, in Christ. That is everywhere, everywhere in the Bible. So I want to briefly look at two things tonight. Um, one is the problems, and two is the corrective. So the problems that arise uh, when our misunderstanding of salvation, our understanding of salvation rather, is too thin, and then the corrective that we need. Okay, so the problems, the problems. When, when we misunderstand the, the fullness of the gospel or the fullness of our union with Christ or the fullness of, of the, the heart of Christianity, there are at least two major consequences that happen, at least two. There's, there's plenty, but at least two. One, if you consider yourself a Christian uh, and yet you have this truncated understanding of the gospel, there will certainly be aspects of your life in God, your fellowship in Christ and with Christ the health of your walk with God that is seriously lacking. 
And what this will do is this will lead to all sorts of, of self-compensations in your life, things that you do to make up for what you've misunderstood or maybe that you've never heard about uh, as it relates to the gospel. And so a really easy example of this is something called legalism or moralism, uh, which at its core is basically the idea that Christ himself is insufficient for your holiness. And so you need to obey some extra set of rules to get God's approval. Christ himself is insufficient for you being okay. You need Jesus plus something else. That's legalism. Jesus plus plus a bunch of rules to follow. Jesus plus, you know, dressing modestly enough. Jesus plus not saying any cuss words. Jesus, you know, before not drinking underage. Jesus plus, you know, fill in the blank. All of these rules that may or may not be good ideas. I'm not necessarily saying some of these rules or guidelines or whatever are bad, but they become a supplement to the fullness of Christ and what he is for your life. So that's the first thing. Secondly, if you're not a Christian, uh, but all you continually hear is this truncated view of the gospel, then you are more than likely to continue to reject Jesus because you have yet to hear or yet to see what's so good about this good news. You have yet to encounter the goodness of the good news of the gospel. Uh, I'm going to pause here really quickly. Am am I clear? Um, Is the connection clear? Because we had some connection problems a minute ago. Is everybody hearing me clearly? Okay, cool. Um, So two major consequences for Christians and un-Christians or non-Christians, right? You're either locked in a spiritual ICU in this intensive care unit because you haven't tapped into the fullness of who God is and the fullness of life in God. Or if we can kind of continue that metaphor, you reject the medical care altogether because you've bought into some spiritual vaccine conspiracy theory. So, you know, don't take it, right? You haven't heard any version of the gospel. You know, you're like, don't take it. You'll end up being really weird. You'll have to wear a lot of denim and you'll lose every ounce of sexual desire you've ever had. Both wrong, right? Both not proper understandings of the gospel. These problematic views of the gospel come in many shapes and many sizes. Uh, For many Christians, uh, a really common one, um, it's understandable, but it's really common, is that we dichotomize the, the person and the work of Christ. Or really, more specifically, we, we dichotomize the person from the work of Christ. We distinguish between the two, Christ and his work, his life, death, resurrection, ascension, right? And so uh, the gospel, uh, salvation is conceived as something external uh, from Jesus that he has acquired for you rather than Jesus himself, do you see that? You understand what I'm saying here? We we have this functional dichotomized, this separate, this um, this separated view of who Jesus is and the work that He's accomplished, such that what salvation becomes is like this box of goodies that Jesus has bought for you, and then He gives you the box. It's external to Him who He is, right? And so there's a separation from the person and the work. Here's this set of gifts, but not the gift giver. Big, big problem. Big problem, right? So Jesus, uh, for many of us, has become 
this like divine Santa Claus where you get his gifts, but you don't see him. He like slides down the chimney. You never see him. You don't touch him. You don't know him. You just hear like stories about him uh, at best, right? Uh, and, And so the gifts that he may give you that this Santa Claus Jesus may give, they may be good gifts, right? Gifts like justification and sanctification. These are what we consider to be the benefits of union with Christ. Um, You're justified and you're sanctified. Uh, But the problem is, is that we mistake these gifts with the giver. So uh, we mistake the benefits from the benefactor. And being in Christ, what that means is that you cannot have the gifts without the giver. And even more importantly, and this is really what I want you to, just sink your teeth into and like chew on for your entire life. If you have the giver, you have all of the gifts. If you have Jesus, you have all of his work. So just a, just a bit of a teaser, right? This is really helpful as we think about conversations like justification and sanctification where many of us functionally believe like our justification that we are made right with God because of what Jesus did. We're declared righteous uh, by an alien righteousness that's imputed to us by Jesus. But then when it comes to sanctification, that's kind of this thing where we functionally prove to God how thankful we are for what he did for us on the cross. So each morning we get up and we do devos and we like call other people out on their like sin and like we diminish the amount of times in life that we sin. That's kind of the whole purpose of it. That's wrong. When you get Jesus, you get all of Jesus, justification and sanctification. Now there's a participation in that that we're going to get to later in the series. But again, if you have the giver, you have all of the gifts. So that's good news because that means you're justified. And when you find yourself as a confessing Christian and you are struggling with the deepest, darkest sins that you've ever encountered in your life and you feel really broken, you feel a lot of shame and you feel a lot of guilt, you can still say just as much as somebody else who looks spotless and shiny that I am sanctified in Christ and he is doing a work in me that he will not stop and nothing can stop. Despite my own heart and despite my own emotion and zeal to be involved in it. Okay, Jesus is a savior, not a life coach. Savior, not a life coach. Okay, here's the good news, kind of, right? What I just said, that's really the best of all the problems. If that's where you are, uh, which, uh, you know, I've been there and I still go there. We, I, I, we're always going to be struggling with this, right? Uh, if that's where you are, then in many ways, you're closer to resting in union with Jesus in a way that you never have. Um, if those are kind of some of the issues that you're like working through. But the reality is, is that most people, uh, most of us have an, uh, an utterly bank, bankrupt view of God. We functionally hold to like this impotent God who's just a nice guy or a nice girl or a nice ghost or something. Um, a few years ago, uh, there was a study conducted, just by way of illustration, there was a study conducted and the results were compiled into two books uh, by Notre Dame sociologist uh, Christian Smith. The two books were called Soul Searching and Souls in Transition. And these 
uh, are the most comprehensive studies of the religious beliefs of American teens and young adults that's ever been conducted. And in those studies, a common theology or set of beliefs, a shared set of beliefs was found from folks that were all over the religious landscape, from all different kinds of religious traditions, okay? Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, um, don't care, all, all the above, right? And that common theology, uh, what Christian Smith found and later termed, uh, was uh, what he calls moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. That was the functional theology, a quote, American theology um, that seemed to be consistent among American expressions of faith in religious ideas and beliefs in God. And here's what those common beliefs about God are. Number one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And finally, number five, Good people go to heaven when they die. Now, what I want to point out to you is that there are just as many so-called Christians who functionally believe this as there are non-Christians who believe this about God. And the sad thing is, is that none of that is anywhere in the Bible. This, this paints a picture for us of a God who kind of tinkered at the beginning and he maybe created a little something. Uh, and then he he really wants you to be nice to people. Uh, and then he's going to stay out of your business unless you need an A on your test. Uh, and then you can pray to him or talk to him, whatever you want to do, meditate to him, right? And he'll come in and he'll resolve your problem. And if you're good, you get to go to heaven. Okay, so that's morality. It's moralism. It's a God who's therapeutic. He's your therapist. And he's deistic. He's totally detached and removed unless you think you kind of need him to get out of a bind. Listen to contemporary Christian music. This is the only thing I'll say about music and I'll stop. Listen to contemporary Christian music and almost all of it basically communicates that. It's a song written from a girl whose heart is broken to her boyfriend or a boyfriend whose heart is broken written to her girlfriend or his girlfriend or or some other kind of relational dynamic. Um, And uh, they're just crying out saying, please come be my therapist for a while. I'll be good. I swear, I promise. And I'm getting to heaven if we get back in this relationship. None of that is in the Bible, right? And so when we misunderstand the gospel, uh, as we do with moral therapeutic deism, we don't become good people. What we become is we become slaves to whatever God or gospel that we've put in place of the true gospel of union with a person. Not a bunch of ideas, a person. A very distinct idea within Christianity is that truth is not a set of concepts. Truth is primarily a person, and that person is Jesus. So there's only one corrective for this problem, and that's that we let the Bible shape our understanding. The Bible as authoritatively 
uh, as, author- as God's authoritative self-revelation of himself and his desires for our life, shape our understanding of our mysterious union with the invisible God, Jesus Christ, all of Christ for all of life. That's what union is about. That is the only corrective. I mentioned at the beginning that the word Christian is rarely used in the Bible, but there's another phrase that's even more central to the gospel, and that's in Christ. Those exact words are used more than 160 times just in Paul's letters. The epistles, a lot of the letters that you see um, after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The exact concept of union with Christ, as we just read in the Gospel of John, is used more than 200 times throughout the Bible. That is what is meant by union with Christ. Union with Christ is a collective phrase that is meant to encompass the astonishing number of terms and expressions and images. Like you've got to use your imagination when you're thinking about union with Christ because it, it, it you know, Paul relates it to a marriage and to being built up as, into one body as, as kind of an architectural image. To um, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we eat uh, um, Christ and, and we are washed in Christ and we put on Christ. It really ignites your imagination. And so this, this phrase, right, is meant to encompass the astonishing number of terms and expressions and images in the New Testament that refer to the oneness of the believer with Jesus. Your inseparable union with Jesus. So let me just cite a few examples as we kind of land this plane here. I'm just going to overload you really quick with a few examples. A few examples of believers, both individually and the church, cor- uh, church corporately, are said to be possessors of eternal life in Christ. Romans 6.36, they're, they're said to be justified in Christ. Romans 8.1, they're said to be glorified in Christ. Romans 8.30 and 2 Corinthians 3.18, they're said to be sanctified, past tense, in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.2, they're said to be called in Christ. Same book, verse 9, same book and chapter, verse 9. Made alive in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, Ephesians 2, 5. Said to be created anew in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Adopted as children of God in Christ, Galatians 3, 26. Elected in Christ, Ephesians 1, 4. Raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1. Created in Christ, Ephesians 2, 10. Crucified in Christ, Galatians 2, 20. Buried in Christ, Colossians 2, 12. Baptized in Christ and in his death, Romans 6, 3. Resurrected in Christ, Romans 6, 5. The list goes on and on and on. And it's not just believers in Christ, but it's Christ in believers, dwelling in our hearts, members of his body as one flesh, Christ in us and us in him. It is everywhere in the Bible. It is in Genesis 1, and it is on the last pages of the book of Revelation. The purpose of God's mission in the world is union and communion in the life of God. And Jesus restores and redeems that for us. And in our life in him, we have that again. 
And of course, we have it even in the passage that we read tonight in John 14. I'm going to read that again. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to close with this quote from a great theologian named John Calvin, who puts it this way. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. Therefore, to share in what he has received from the Father He, Jesus, had to become ours and to dwell within us. For as I have said, all that he possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with him. That's why we need a series on union with Christ. That's what we're going to be unpacking this semester. Hopefully it will be shorter than tonight. Sorry I went over. Because apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Let's pray, and then we'll send you out in discussion groups. Lord, we thank you uh, that our union with you is true, even um, whether or not we understand it fully, uh, whether or not we're just kind of nursing on milk and not quite eating full meals uh, in relation to it. Um, We thank you that nothing can separate us from you. But yet we do ask and we pray that you would sink our teeth into uh, the great beautiful truth of our um, union with you and what that means for us practically in this life. Um, Would you give us faith to cling to you even as you cling to us? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.